First John chapter 1 and verse 1 through 4, and we're only going to begin tonight to consider the first letter of John. We're just going to I'll just go ahead and read it. We're going to jump in here uh, in just a moment. John, first John, chapter 1 and verses 1 through 4. The apostle writes and says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Well, here we have the first letter, the first epistle, if you will, of the Apostle John. I think everybody here knows who John is. I certainly hope so. If you were at Mount Zion a little over a decade ago, we spent a lot of time in the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, um, in, uh, in, in my tenure as pastor, it was the first time we went through uh, a book exegetically, one verse by one verse by one verse from front to back, and it really changed the character of what Mount Zion is. John, the apostle, is the brother of James. And he is, I mean, it, it's one thing to be an apostle. It's another thing to be James and John. They were the sons of thunder, Jesus called them. In Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, it says that he, that being Christ, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. Is a reflection of the same concept that we see Jesus later speaking in the Gospel of John to his apostles, where he says, You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And so here we see the moment of that choosing, where Christ goes up on the mountain and he calls to himself those whom he desires, and they did what men do when the Lord calls. They came to him, and he appointed twelve. And he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, which is, you guys know, means it's Petros, right? It means rock. We always joke that, you know, while Peter would end up being the rock, he started off dumb as a rock. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Donerius, that is, sons of thunder. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to give you a nickname. I'm going with sons of thunder over dumb as a rock any day. And so here you have James and John. Peter, the rock, and the two sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. And the reality is, it is these three that he has given particular name to will become the three that are most close and the most intimate with him throughout his ministry. They will be the ones that are taken apart from the rest of the apostles to pray with him privately in Matthew chapter 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane just before the crucifixion. John will be the one that reclines against his breast. 
the table of the Last Supper, he will be the one that is referred to as the apostle that Jesus loved. And it is these three together that will bear witness to one of the most glorious sights that has been seen on earth up until this day, and that is the transfiguration of Jesus Christ himself in his eternal glory. Speaking of the transfiguration, which we're going to see here in a moment, had a great impact on what John has to say in the opening verses of chapter 1. Speaking of the transfiguration in his second epistle, Peter will say it like this. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, that we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter says, man, we're not telling fishing stories that we heard from someone else or devised with our own cleverness. We're telling you what we saw with our own eyes. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. Now that statement right there is the part that has always caused me to take pause for a moment. I mean, here you've got Peter, because John's going to do something similar, and they're going to refer to the things that they were eyewitnesses of, that they saw directly for themselves, things that they can literally be in the Greek martyrs of, that they can be legal witnesses to. You know that the term for martyr now has the connotation of death with it, but originally it was simply a legal term that meant someone who was an eyewitness and therefore could bear legal testimony that would not be hearsay in a court of law. That they were there, that they saw. The thing is, is that so many Christians that bore witness to what Christ had done for them died for their faith in the ensuing generations that the understanding of the word actually changed. Not just to be a witness, but someone that witnessed something, bore witness, and that very cost them their lives. And so here's Peter, and he says, I was a witness... I was a martyr along with James and John and we saw this thing. We saw His glory. We heard the voice of the Father speak from heaven. And yet, and this is the same thread that John's going to start running on here in just a moment. Yet, there is something even more sure than what we saw. And... This is a lesson we would all do well to learn and is particularly applicable for the church today. Regardless of what your experience is, no matter how good it is, no matter how bad it is, your, your experience is never as sure as the Word of God itself. So that we don't fall into the trap of interpreting the Word of God through what our experience but instead allow the Word of God to give enlightenment to that which we have experienced. That we may understand what happened to us because of our own accord, our own accord, our perspective is far too limited. So Peter says this. Peter says, look, man, we were there. We saw it with our own eyes. It was incredible. It changed my life forever. And yet, 
we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention is a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The argument that Peter is making and that you're going to see John making, the argument they're making is this. We wouldn't trade anything in the world for the experience of being the eyewitnesses of what Jesus Christ did except for the Word of God. And if it came down to having those experiences and that meant not having the prophetic word or having the prophetic word and having to have the prophetic word tell us about men that had those experiences, we would take the prophetic word. Now guys, I don't know that that's a position that I would naturally hold. In my own nature, what I would say is, no man, I want to see it for myself. And, and, and hey, look, I'm not a skeptic. I'm fully vested. I'm as in as I can be. I wouldn't want to see it for myself uh, to, to prove that He is who He is. I want to see it because I believe He is who He is. Right? Like, I want to see it, man. See the fireworks. Man, I want to see heaven opened. And Peter says, listen, it's better for you. This is one of those statements that's similar to what Jesus makes when He's speaking to the apostles about Him going away and the particular empowerment of the Holy Spirit that is coming. He says, it's better for me to go away. Like, you have a hard time wrapping your mind around that. Lord, You are with us. How can it be better that You're not here? He says, trust me, it's better. He says, we have something more sure than what we saw with our own eyes. The prophetic Word which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. One of the reasons that this is true, not only individually, but particularly in light of the church at large that John is writing to, is because of the time that John wrote this. Most scholars would agree that the first epistle of John was written after the Gospel of John. And as you know, the Gospel of John was written very late in John's life, towards the very end of the first century. By the time John writes, the first epistle came shortly thereafter. Couldn't have come very long thereafter because John didn't live a long time thereafter. The first epistle of John comes shortly after the Gospel of John, and at that point in time, John is the only apostle left alive that saw these things. You see, the, the, the problem with relying on experience versus the ordained word is that the men and the women that have had the experience are going to pass on. And the word remains. Amen. It remains. And so, you know, I'm sure John wrote a lot of stuff. I don't know if you know he made grocery lists or, or, or what. John wrote a lot of stuff. A lot of the stuff that John wrote was not the inspired word of God. That's why we still don't have it today. If it was, we would. The Lord protects His word. He guards it. The canon is secure. We have this because in this, the Holy Spirit was coming in and carrying John along in such a way that he, what he wrote wasn't simply the words of John. It wasn't even the words of just an apostle, but it was the very Word of God to His people. And that Word remains. 
He wrote somewhere between 90 and 95 AD. And he wrote from Ephesus. This is after he was released from exile on Patmos. And if you know anything about Ephesus, I think you should, as Toby's been hammering it in, uh, in, in Sunday school uh, on Sunday mornings. If you know anything about Ephesus, it is a rich city that is the cultural and intellectual center of Asia Minor. Man, it is as Hellenistic as Hellenistic can be. It is Greeky as Greeky can be. As a matter of fact, the ruins of ancient Ephesus, particularly the library there, are still like on the, the right towards the top of the big checklist if you want to go see the remains of the wonders of the ancient world. These guys were big thinkers. They were heavily into philosophy. And because of that, there was a particular danger within Ephesus, even more so than maybe the rest of the church at large, that heresy and false teachers would arise. We know this because Paul speaks specifically to it in his speech before he leaves for Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20. I'm just going to flip over there. Now. Like I said, guys, this is just kind of background. We're not really going to dive into the meat of the text this week. We don't have time, and I'm going to get you out of here relatively close to time. But but I want to, I want to kind of get the context for it away. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 17, um, you guys, you guys should be familiar with the narrative here. Uh, the Holy Spirit is leading Paul to Jerusalem. He knows that some very difficult things lie in wait for him there. And so, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, it says, Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul starts this off by reminding them of their history. He says, look guys, you know how it was. You know that it was great personal danger to me, but that I loved you enough to tell you the truth, even when the truth was a dangerous thing to me. And that truth has not been without effect in you, but has indeed been the means that the Lord used to bring you to faith in Him so that you're saved as you are this day. We know each other. We can trust each other. We've been down these roads together. So now comes the hard truth. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I might finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He says, okay, hard things are coming for me. But look, we've done hard things before, and you're just going to have to accept the Lord's providence in this. It's difficult. It's difficult for you. It's difficult for me. I know I'm never going to see you again, and I know what's waiting on me. But such is the constraint of the Spirit. Everybody, you're going to have to be strong and courageous here. 
because this is the goodness that the Lord has. But before I go, let me leave you with something about you. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. One of the things that you will notice when you, if you, and I would encourage you to do this, you know, I know a lot of you guys, you know, read your Bible once a year or, or, or read it every couple of years, and, and, you know, you may have used, you may have read it from front to back, you may have used some, some different, you know, reading, um, you know, a lot of people use kind of reading plans that move them around so, you know, you don't get that proverbial bog down in numbers where you're just reading one genealogy after the other, after the other, after the other. But I would encourage you at some point in time to find yourself a chronographical, chronological, not chronograph, I'm not concerned how fast it's going, I'm concerned the, the time in which it unfolds, a chronological um, ordering of the scripture because it brings some real life to things when you start reading it in the order that it unfolded. And one of the things you'll notice in the New Testament when you do that is that early on, the oppression is, and, and, and the pressure that Satan is bringing against the church is coming, of course, we know primarily from the Jews, and it is a misunderstanding of the law and the prophets where they do not see Christ as the Messiah that was foretold and want to hang on to the shadow and the copy that they have instead of pressing into the reality of the kingdom that is present. That changes pretty quickly. Within the course of a generation, the gospel gets out of the bottle, so to speak. And man, Paul is 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 sent sent forth from Antioch, and man, this thing explodes like wildfire amongst the Gentiles. And the Gentiles aren't that concerned with the tradition of the blood sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That kind of response is no longer fitting to try to tamp down the gospel, and Satan has to retool and come up with something new. And over and over and over, you see the writers of the New Testament begin to prophetically warn about this thing coming in the future, and then as it comes and as it materializes, begin to respond to it in its development. Today, by the time it's fully grown, we're going to put the label of Gnosticism on it. And it's got all sorts of, of weird little curls and twists to it, but it is Satan's initial response to the gospel amongst the Western world and in the midst of the Greek mind of this as, as we move through the first century. The writers of the New Testament begin to first prophetically address it and then directly address it and it becomes with greater and greater and greater urgency that they are coming against it. As a matter of fact, in the book of Jude, man, you got to go to Jude anytime you get the chance, right? In the book of Jude, um, you talk about a powerful little 
talk about a lot of horsepower in a small engine, man. This is Jude's deal. In the book of Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ on his mama's side says this in verse 3. Uh, let's just go back first. Why not? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Behold, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write about something else. I want you to notice the heart of the believer as he's communicating with other believers. And the first thing that we're going to say is this, is he has a desire that is, I don't think you can call it a natural desire, you have to call it a supernatural desire because it's of the Spirit, but it is, can we get away with saying it is the natural supernatural desire? But what I mean by that, it is the primary desire of the new creation as it relates to speaking with other believers. So the primary desire of the new creation when it comes to speaking with other believers is, is, is not to talk about football, and it's not to talk about politics, and it's not to talk about food, and it's not to talk about the weather. In a vacuum, all things else being equal, the primary desire of communication between the believers is to talk about their common salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the baseline. If everything else is, is, is equal, that's what the subject is, is going to be. But Jude says, I find it necessary to speak to you about something else. I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So, he says, I would like to just talk to you. We could just, you know, do the whole kitchen talk thing. He said, we miss this so much with Butch Penny, man. And Butch, you know, I mean, here's the deal. I give Butch a hard time. Always did. Did when he was alive. He gave me, you know, I'll do it, I'll do it now that he's not here to defend himself for sure. I used to say I only take two calls from Butch, one in the morning, one in the evening. That's the limit for the day. The reality is, is I called Butch a lot too. You know, there were certain topics, certain scratch your head, what do you think about this stuff that you can talk about with Butch? And, and, and he didn't walk away thinking you were crazy because he was crazier than you were. Okay? Great stuff. Great stuff. Some of this is the kind of stuff we used to talk about. He says, look, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. So what I would like to do is, is have the Butch Bean talk. I would like to, to yaw-yaw about the great what-ifs of the gospel that we probably won't actually really know until we see Jesus face-to-face. -face. That's what I would like to do today, man. That would be a fun, life, joyous conversation. But we got to talk about something that's more serious than sit. What we have to do here is we have to talk about I'm appealing to you to contend for the faith. That does not mean plant your stake and, and so it does not simply mean plant your stake and be unwilling to move. It is a military term that gets used very few times in Scripture and it means to strive and fight for victory. Contending is, is the kind of word that would be used if, if you had two, two individuals locked in mortal physical combat and they were going to contend until one was victorious and the other, quite frankly, was dead. He says, so I'm writing for you to contend for the faith. I mean, that's some pretty bold verbiage. Like, hey Jude, why are you using verbiage that's that bold? Okay, here, because we just shifted hard. Man, I'd like to yell y'all with you, but what we're going to have to do is fight until somebody dies. Why? Why? 
for certain people have crept in unnoticed from who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Okay, that statement right there, we're, we're not dealing with people that have some of their theology askew. This is ordained condemnation from long ago. Who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Who are they? Are they godly people that are confused? No, they're not. They're not genuinely saved people with some screwy theology. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. But they do so under the guise and under the banner of Christ. You see, that's the danger here. It's what you have are not a bunch of agnostics or atheists that are wanting to pervert society. What you have is people that are apostates that are claiming to be Christians that want to pervert the gospel. So here's what we're contending with, because this gets quoted wrong a lot of times. Well, we're not contending. This is not us going, hey, let's go out and contend against the secularist that says that there is no God and, and, and the gospel is a pipe dream. That's not the people you're contending against. What you're contending against is ungodly people who claim to be godly, who are not trying to pervert the culture, but who are trying to pervert the gospel. These are people that are going to have a cross hanging around their neck. And they're going to have inspirational Bible verses on a lot of their stuff, typically today backed by a rainbow flag. When you go to a church, we've got the Greenwood, we've got the Fort Smith Church, so this, you know, that claim to be that. And you know, here is this, come worship Jesus with us with a picture of a rainbow. The best one was the guy carrying his Bible with the suit on. He's got the short pants. He looks like you're looking for the high water with the rainbow socks. And it says, everyone welcome. Everyone means everyone. If you mean by that, that we want to invite sinners to everyone to come and hear the gospel, that they may depart from their sin, repent, and be born again, then amen. But that is not what they mean. And you know it and I know what they mean is that you do not have to depart from your sin. Scripture is wrong. What, what you think is right is right. Scripture is wrong. This is not actually a sin. And Jesus is not only okay, but He is pleased to have you exactly in the condition you are. Which is not what my Bible says. My Bible says that a man is no fool to give up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Pick up your cross and follow me. You have to contend for the faith, not because of a godless culture that is coming against your faith and denying that it is real, but because of people that wear the banner of Jesus Christ and are speaking perverse things about His truth and His person and His gospel. Paul knows it's coming. Jude says this is what it looks like. You must contend. Okay, how do you contend? I know I'm, I'm not even close, but I'm, I'm almost done. How do you contend? You contend in two different ways. You contend in two different ways. One is you speak against that which is false in order that it might be exposed, silenced, and destroyed. That is exactly what Paul writes in the pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus. I mean, he even uses that verbiage. This must be silence. So you do that. But that's not the only thing you do. It's 
how you contend. Said this is very militaristic language. The way you that's not how you not that alone is not how you contend. You can't just do that because before you can do that, what you have to do is you have to have a group of people that are trained up in what is true and what is right, and be strong in what is true and what is right, so that they may go contend. Because if you just if you see them saved on Sunday, pat them on the head and send them out to contend with these things on Monday, what they're going to do, for the most part, is get wood chipper. This is not the discipleship that Scripture consistently speaks of. And so, in order to contend against these things, you must also train up in righteousness those who will be contending. And in doing so, not only will you prepare them to contend, but you will also shield them from becoming victims of this perversion themselves. This is what we're constantly doing. You guys are familiar with this. This is what we're doing with ourselves, what we're doing with our kids. I'm training them up. So what you see in the first epistle of John is not John giving the doctrinal truth that you see, not that he's not giving the doctrinal truth, but that the purpose here is, is not to convey the gospel to the masses in its totality for, for those that are saved and unsaved that they might become saved like he does in the gospel of John. What you see here is John writing to people who were already saved. They're already saved. Now look, I'm all about Scripture, man. And if you can get Scripture in front of someone that's not saved, then by golly, I'll take any of it. I don't care. Put Leviticus in front of them. If that's all you can get in front of them, I'm not saying that. But I would say this, that there are some Scriptures that are designed more specifically for those that aren't born again, and some that are designed more specifically for those that are. And so if you've got the option, you know, put the square peg in the square hole. And so here's the first epistle of John. And it's not written to inform people that are ignorant. It's written to train people that are born again. And I want you to notice the similarities. And I'm done with this. I'm done. I'm done. Even though I'm not even close. That was all supposed to be an introduction to the introduction sermon. <laughs> but, but I want you to notice... What do you notice about it? One of the things that's interesting about the Epistle of John is that there's no there's no there's no salutation, there's no address. He just starts writing. This is not a formal letter. He doesn't say, hey, this is the you know, you know how Paul starts his formal epistles to, to Ephesus or to Corinth. <laughs> There's this introduction where he introduces himself. He gives his credentials, right? Hey, man, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've done this. I've done this. You know that. You were there. Blah, blah, blah. You know, ask Timothy about it kind of thing. Greetings to you in Ephesus or Corinth or Philippi or wherever you're at. And now that we've got all that out of the way and we know who's who and who's talking and who's listening, let's start with the information. This is not that, man. This is a, it's not a formal letter. This is, this is a guy writing to people he knows and they know him. He doesn't even have to say who he is. It's like if I write a note to my wife, I don't have to sign it. She knows my handwriting. Man, when you read the opening four verses of the Epistle of John, you know it's John. It has so many similarities with the opening statements of the Gospel of John that it's crazy. I mean, let's look at it just real quick. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we look upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. 
life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and our indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ and we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Now if we go back to John just for a moment, look at, look at John 1. And we'll look at verses 1 through 4 and then jump down to verse 9 through 14 just for time's sake. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And in the first epistle of John, he's going to say it was made manifest. So both of them, he's talked about that which was from the beginning and all the glories that go with it. And now these things are being made manifest. They were coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And John is the example of that in the epistle of John. He said this thing that was from the beginning that we saw, it was manifest, and guess what? Because it was manifest, because for those who did receive Him, He gave the right to become the children of God, here I am. And I can say that I have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, and if you walk with Him, then I have fellowship with you and Him as well. And I am one of the ones that He called to the top of the mountain and called the ones He desired. Born not of the will of flesh or the will of man, but of the will of God. So many similarities. And yet when we read them, and if you'll go home this week and read them, read them back to back a couple times, you'll notice that there is something about them that probably at first you have a hard time putting your finger on that says they are very different. Same concepts from the beginning, the glory, the manifestation, the bringing into fellowship, the concepts are there. But somehow it's different. You know it's different? In one, John is using the personal masculine pronoun, he. Gospel of John and Epistle of John, he is using the neuter pronoun that gets translated that. And so in one of them, John is talking about a he that is from the beginning and is glorious and has been made manifest and has caused us to have fellowship with him, be the very children of God. And the other one, he's talking about a that, an it which was from the beginning and has been gloriously made manifest and is causing us to have fellowship with two hymns, the Father and the Son. John hasn't changed his theology. He's reversed the polarity of the argument. In the Gospel of John, he is bearing witness to the He that is the Son of God that 
brings, that, that, that is the gospel, that is the good news. In the epistle of John, he is talking about the word of God that is the gospel that brings us to the heat. That's right. Amen. And it's a big deal that it's that way. Because what he's doing is solidifying the underpinning that makes sure that the Gnostics cannot pervert the gospel. They're going to try. And they're going to try to do it through a secret knowledge of Jesus Christ. And what John's about to do is put them on lockdown and give them no room to wiggle. Took too much time tonight. Thank you. Pray for us.